Andrew Talks to Chefs is an independent podcast. For current and past episodes, Andrew's blog, contact information, and more, please visit andrewtalkstochefs.com. To support us, please visit patreon.com slash andrewtalkstochefs. Enjoy the show. I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. my core philosophy in the restaurant of values from the beginning is that the customer comes last. And my whole staff knows that the customer comes last. And what we mean by that is we take care of the environment. We take care of the people who are producing the food. We make sure that every single person from the dishwasher to the bartender to the server get fed really well and treated equally. And if we do all that, then the guests will get taken care of. I found when you chase that kind of publicity that it was outer directed and I didn't like it. It didn't feel right. That is the voice of Jesse Cool of Flea Street Cafe in Menlo Park, California. There's going to have to be more hiring, dramatically more hiring, because so many positions have opened up. You know, there were layoffs, there were furloughs, people moved back home. People that were laid off or furloughed, a lot of those people, probably over 50% management level, are not coming back for whatever reason. Maybe they found another job, they got into a different industry, they moved home. That being said, there's a ton of activity right now. I'm very hopeful. Our clients are hopeful. That's why they're hiring you know, more now. So yes, I'm excited. And that is Brad Metzger of Brad Metzger Restaurant Solutions in Los Angeles, California. They and two of Brad's colleagues are our guests today on Andrew Talks to Chefs. It's gonna take a Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman. I am sorry we missed you all last week, but we're going to make it up to you this week. In addition to today's show, we will be dropping another episode in the middle of this week. It's a really good one, so I hope you'll check back for that late Tuesday or sometime on Wednesday. Our feature guest today is Jesse Cool. Jesse is the proprietor of Flea Street Cafe, a restaurant that has been around for about four decades in Menlo Park, California. More about her in just a bit. But before we get to that, our new segment this week focuses on the emerging job market that's coming into sight as the first signs of a post-pandemic life begin to reveal themselves. To discuss this constantly shifting landscape, I invited my friend Brad Metzger, founder of the California-based Brad Metzger Restaurant Solutions, which is a hospitality recruiting firm, along with two of his associates, Ali Barton and Jackie Lianza. We had a multifaceted conversation about what jobs are coming back, which might take a while, and some new and evolving employment sectors that I think anyone in the industry will be interested to hear about. So without any further delay, let me get you right to that conversation. Here you go. My talk with Brad Metzger, Ali Barton, and Jackie Lianza. 
Before we jump in, Brad, you'll be easy to make out because you're the only other dude here. But Allie and Jackie, can you just please say hello, say your names, just so people have a, a reference for your voices? Hi, I'm Allie Barton. Hi, my name is Jackie Lianza. Thank you all for joining us. Brad, why don't we start with you? First of all, good to see you. Thank you, Andrew. Why don't we just talk generally, Brad? You know, this it, we're already almost about a year into this thing, amazingly. I remember trading some very grim texts with you about 11 months ago when this was all starting to go down. You know, when you think back at this point to kind of the early days of the pandemic and then this like descent into the late spring and summer of last year, what's it all been like for you, for you guys as people who interact intimately with a lot of you know, people in the hospitality business around a, a topic that's often in regular times, it's very glamorous and fun and, and promising. But in these times, it's been literally about people's kind of comfort and survival. It's been very tough, but it's also been very, very inspiring too, you know? And before I even get to that, I will say it's been incredible having your show. I walk every day and it's one of my ways of, of clearing my brain and you have done just an incredible job with your with your show, especially in the beginning, the way you had so many episodes in the very beginning. So thanks for that. It helped my sanity and helped with my perspective on everything. Thank you very much. It helped mine too, to be honest. But of course, super tough for the industry on so many levels. I, I don't think anyone th thought it would last this long. And it's been so devastating, you know, in so many ways to so many people. However, it's truly brought the industry closer and it's put so many important issues in focus for people that people are addressing finally and working on and dealing with. And I really, it's cliche, but I really do think the industry will come out stronger, even though it's going to be even tough you know, over the next many months here. You're all, I'm talking to all of you from California, but you don't just do business in California. You do business all over the country. I don't even know this. Do you do business all over the world? On occasion, yes. We've placed people in Kenya, in Russia, in Anguilla. We both have a, a tangential relationship to the hospitality industry. I write about it. Last year was, for me personally, um, you know, and I'm not, I'm not crying about it. I'm not asking for attention about it. But, you know, I, I am a freelancer. I am an author. It was, I had almost no work last year. It was really, really, really tough. That all, without getting into it, started to change for me literally on the first day of 2021, the first business day of January 4th. All of a sudden, you know, I had an inquiry from a potential new advertiser for the show and some freelance work. All of it, you know, it just, I feel like people were so eager to put 2020 behind us, although obviously the universe doesn't draw these neat lines the way we do, like on a calendar. But I, I do from where I sit, and and granted, I am in a state that has, you know, we've re returning to a very low positivity number, you know, but with a vaccine making its way around, with restaurant workers in a lot of places now being prioritized to get it, with warm weather just around the corner for those of us in cold weather climates, I, I do definitely have the first glimmer of optimism for the near future. Like you said, not that it's going to go back overnight to normalcy or anything close to it, but I do have a sense of uh, kind of a, a feeling of optimism that we're going to start, you know, that ramp up back to something much better soon. It, do you perceive it that way? And please don't feel the need to justify my Pollyannish attitude. <laughs> um, you know, give it to me straight. We really saw things pick up 
back the first time in LA when outdoor dining finally opened after outdoor dining was closed. Things really picked up. There was a momentum. People were, you know, the restaurants were hiring people back very fast. The the attitudes, you know, were 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 you know hopeful. Um, the diners were clamoring to get out, and then when outdoor dining closed again here, it was right at Thanksgiving, and they were closed for a few months. Then it got it got grim again, you know, to to an extent. However, now things are booming. Things are things are completely turning around here in LA. Um, diners are are out in full force. Places are packed. We have we have clients that when they opened up their reservations after the, you know outdoor dining opened again, were booked solid for two three weeks. We've gotten more calls in the last two weeks than any any time you know in the whole year of the past in terms of clients wanting to hire people. This whole you know episode has displaced so many workers and so many teams that you know there's going to have to be more hiring, dramatically more hiring, because so many positions have opened up. You know, there were layoffs, there were furloughs, people moved back home. People that were laid off or furloughed, a lot of those people, probably over 50% management level, are not coming back for whatever reason. Maybe they found another job, they got into a different industry, they moved home. That being said, there's a ton of activity right now. I'm very hopeful. Our clients are hopeful. That's why they're they're hiring, you know, more now. So yes, I'm 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 excited. Allie, broadly speaking, you deal with the back of the house, the the pe- kitchen employees. Brad just gave a nice snapshot of the the company in general and of Los Angeles in particular. But what are you seeing in terms of? I guess if you could drill down a little on what he just said, are you seeing people starting to bring people back on at all levels? Why don't we start there? I, you know, one of the things I wonder, and it's it's kind of even pushed my own knowledge of how kitchens work beyond what I could really extrapolate. All I can do is ask people, but I'm trying to decipher, you know, like have, have are there layers that have at least temporarily gone away in kitchens? You know, are there layers of employees that are almost considered a luxury now or even certain positions that are considered a luxury now. You're spot on. We saw this bubble of positions that started coming back initially. And I was kidding around that I felt like all the chef owners, restaurateurs got together and decided on like, we're only hiring kind of CDC or chef to cuisine level and executive chefs of kind of a lower, more entry level executive chefs gone were the days of six-figure exec chef positions for a bit there like we just that was not on the map anymore and that was a luxury like all of those multi-unit regional chefs culinary directors r&d chefs you know the those roles that everyone aspires to you know of greatness in your career those were gone you know in 2020 the people that still had those jobs were smart enough not to leave them first of all, right? Like if you weren't getting laid off or getting dramatically reduced in salary, you were staying put because you had a good thing going on. On the flip side, we also didn't see a lot of sous chef positions coming back. So those sous chef level, kitchen manager, so more of the entry level salary management roles, you know, we're a little more few and far between. It seemed like people are really focusing on kind of that middle tier, the mid-level professionals for lack of better terms. And my theory on it, and something Brad touched on, 
It's because a lot of people left the big cities. So you see this vacuum in places like New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, where traditionally people from the rest of the country and even the world have gravitated toward these major cities. And, you know, the pandemic really put things in perspective for a lot of people. And none of us knew the severity or what it was going to look like. And for a lot of people, that meant moving back home to Ohio or Iowa, you know, moving back home to see their family that maybe they hadn't seen in five, six years other than occasional trips because they've been working, as we know, restaurant hours. And so even as we come out of that curve, I'm finding there's less of a talent pool in the major cities because people are just really reassessing where they're at in life and what their priorities are going forward. People want security after this, right? Like... Let's be honest, your average, you know, younger millennial Gen Z sous chef has never asked me before about benefits, right? Like that wasn't even something on their radar versus coming out of this. They want security and stability with a company that is going to give them some sort of medical coverage, right? Coming out of something like this, you realize, hey, health insurance is something I might need. I think you also have to take a look at the fact that coming up on on what happened with the pandemic we had the lowest unemployment rates in, it was something like 60 years. And suddenly it was like the pendulum swung, right? We went from like these record lows, I think it was since 1953. I used to pull market stats all the time. And then suddenly our unemployment rose more dramatically in three months than it did in the two years of the recession, right? Um, Tracking with Pew Research, if you look at their materials. And so I think part of that is then people that have maybe only grown up in this time of having the luxury of low unemployment and being able to jump from job to job. It's also been a reckoning for them that like, hey, you know, I might want to stay put for a while because you don't know how long this high unemployment is going to last. So Jackie, front of house right now, that's kind of your, that's your turf. I'm in New York. You guys are in, in Southern California. Everything's harder right now for whichever side of the swinging doors you're on right in the kitchen people have to do this very this job in a hot space you know wearing masks and it's incredibly uncomfortable and, and challenging front of the house now it might mean you know you're you're having to police people i've heard this from so many chefs and restaurateurs you know well you know we, we still can't get this problem disappeared of people you know, they get up from the table and we have to ask them to put their mask on. Some of them don't want to. Front of house is really challenging right now. Bottom line, has even the description of what people are looking for had to change to keep pace with kind of the increased ask that's being made of people in these positions? You know, it's interesting. In having discussions with the front of house candidates, I, I find that they're pretty much game for anything because they're so passionate about this industry. They want to be working. They miss being in restaurants. And I, I think that we've actually seen less front of house opportunities throughout the pandemic just because of the nature of the business, that there's been no indoor, outdoor dining for the most part, especially here in California. We've had so many restrictions. And so with the bulk of the dining being takeout, that just called for a higher amount of chef positions rather than front of house positions. But, you know, I think we've referenced resilience and I think our our leaders in our restaurants are very resilient. And, you know, if anything, some of the conversations have revolved around some front of house managers just not being ready to go back because they weren't willing to put themselves at risk being so close with the guests and in that uh, sort of contact. So it hasn't been really around the PPE and what that's what that entails. It's been more, you know, I think I'm kind of going to hunker down, continue to hunker down 
and stay safe and keep my friends and family safe before going back to work. So there's certainly been quite a bit of that. I'd love to go to the same question that I started asking Ali about, which is, you know, as I think about the layers of a dining room, first of all, I'm wondering if there are new positions. Like, you know, I have a friend who told me they created like a safety position, someone who you know, is in charge of keeping up with like what the guidelines are and making sure those are enforced in-house. Um, but I'm wondering if there are any other, um, are there any new positions that are emerging from this in, in dining rooms? Well, with our clients, we've definitely seen the more traditional positions. You know, we work with a lot more of the, the smaller independent restaurant groups. So perhaps they may not have the budget to have something like a safety manager. So they'll give that responsibility to someone on the team because certainly those protocols are very important and someone needs to stay on top of those. So I think on our end, in terms of the new positions that we've been working on, we've definitely seen the more traditional roles. And, you know, just speaking to what Ali had touched upon earlier, I think we've pretty much seen the same uh, ebbs and flows in terms of the new positions or positions that are available. We've definitely seen those multi-unit layers go away and haven't really come back um, as readily as some of the other opportunities, as well as the the high-paying GM roles. Although now that our restaurants have reopened, specifically out here in California, for outdoor dining, we've just seen a huge influx of, of new opportunities, which has been really promising. This last week, as I've had conversations with candidates, it has seriously felt, I feel this big sense of relief um, internally, like my heart feels good. I feel like we're true. We're truly headed in the right direction, and that we're not going to fall back into you know what we have over the last six to nine months. There are a ton of jobs out there now. Okay, like I mentioned, so many people have been displaced from top restaurants that, that this kind of event has not happened in years. That being said, literally right now and in the coming months. There will be more opportunities at top, top restaurants that there have been in years, okay? And what I want to tell people is you need to go after the jobs that you want. You can't just look on a job site and respond to that ad with your resume and hope someone's going to call you. If you see an ad for a line cook at the French Laundry or you see an ad for an awesome restaurant in your neighborhood and you apply, okay? Do what 99% of other people do not do and take the extra step and do something. Meaning, find out the chef of the restaurant, get his name, send him a thoughtful note, bring him cookies or her cookies or your, your signature dish that you think would go incredibly well there and show up at the back door Okay, get his email address somehow by calling the restaurant. Okay, trying to get the chef's email somehow. If they don't, if they don't want to give it to you, pretend, pretend you are a diner and you had an amazing experience and you want to send a thank you email to the chef. My point is, jobs are there for the taking, and the people that are hiring people take notice of people candidates that go the extra mile. And it's not hard because hardly anyone does that. And it's the people that do that that completely stick out to the hiring managers. I love that. Thank you for all that. Yeah, in a digital, in a digital age, the human touch will always stand out. Allie, 
You know, something I saw, well, Brad and I talked even about one or two of these positions at the time, but, you know, something I saw on, you know, the the Instagram feed for for the company last year was an increased, at least as far as I perceived it, um, uh, number of calls for private or sometimes also called personal chef positions. Um, Is that a, a growing segment of the industry? I've always, I've felt for years now that, um, I wrote a piece actually for Taste online a couple of, uh, maybe about a year and a half ago about it, but I've always believed that that is such an under-considered role because it does, I think, you know, like years ago, that was kind of something you did when you were on the way up as a cook, maybe, you know, between gigs or you needed, you know, you were burnt out, you needed a break or you just couldn't get a job, you really needed money, but there's, I've, I really believe, having interviewed a number of people who do that work currently, some of whom used to be chefs, you know, in very uh, well-respected, well-reviewed, well-known restaurants, um, I've, th- I've always thought that is an under-considered avenue for chefs. Is that something that's growing from your point of view? Absolutely. You know, Brad actually spoke to, what was it, Rob Report? He was featured in an article about private chefs and just how much it's grown, you know, over the pandemic, uh, in part because, you know, people at that certain level that have the resources to be able to bring somebody onto their staff to cook for them, you know, they're not in a position where they want to be going out maybe for outdoor dining quite yet. And, but they still want that great quality of food. You know, they want those Michelin star chefs. And to be honest, when we see private chef positions coming up in this last year, a number of times, if not the vast majority, they were looking for people with accolades, right? From a chef-driven, recognizable background, you know, rather than say Joe Schmo working down the street, you know, they they wanted somebody with, you know, the Baloods of the world or, you know, just the bully, you know, they wanted those names on the resume. So definitely, it's also a great avenue for people that are culinary professionals that don't feel quite safe enough being in a kitchen yet. You know, one of the things about working in a kitchen is you might have less exposure to the public, but a lot of times you're working in a small environment where you're shoulder to shoulder with a few other people. And it's hard to do the social distancing, you know, when you literally your grill is right next to the, I don't know, the fryer, you know, it, you know, you're literally shoulder to shoulder with people. So it's a great opportunity for people looking to still practice what they love and stay in the culinary world, but not necessarily in a restaurant environment or even a hotel environment for that matter. And it can, right? That, that you know, a lot of people hear private chef and they think they're just going to be making like, uh, you know, roast chicken and, and uh, potato, you know, gratin or something in a salad like every night of the week, right? But there are adventurous clients, are there not, for personal chefs? I mean, I've heard tell... Uh, of people who, you know, they have clients, they maybe just don't like to go to uh, restaurants all that often, but they like to eat adventurously. They like the notion of kind of having, you know, a chef right there in their home, kind of basically, you know, using them as their culinary guinea pigs, like trying new ideas on them. And it's it's kind of like matchmaking, isn't it? You can, you can, if you work at it, you can kind of find an outlet for the kind of cooking you want to do in that realm. I think that's a lot of what we try to do across the board, but particularly in private chefing, because it's such a more intimate nature. It's not just about cooking the food that they really love or the style they're looking for, whether that's California fresh, going to the farmer's market and picking up ingredients, or it's somebody who wants composed plates, three course dinner every night, versus someone who maybe is keto or low carb or has 
I'm not kidding. We once had years ago a client with, you know, a multiple page list of restrictions and guidelines of what they want, you know, and different personalities are going to mesh with different clients. And so it's not just the food part. A lot of it is the actual personality of hey, this person has young children, so we need a chef who doesn't mind if a six-year-old runs in and asks them a couple questions versus the client who is entertaining celebrities or dignitaries and needs a different level of caliber personality. You know, it's matchmaking is pretty spot on with when it comes to private chefing. I'm convinced there's going to be new forms of hospitality that are going to come out of this. Maybe not in the next couple of weeks, um, you know, Wiley Dufresne was on the show recently and he and I both think food trucks are going to go to a whole nother level. Um, it just makes so much sense right now. I'm sure there are 22 year old, you know, culinary students or or people who are about that age, you know, 20 ish who right now are putting together a business plan or just, you know, throwing together some kind of business that I personally can't imagine. But that's built for, you know, a pandemic age. But I do think there are business models that are going to be, you know, leaner, more outdoors, super ventilated, maybe mobile. I don't know what it is, but do you guys see any of this yet? Do you, is there anything on your radar or is there any prognosticating you might do about a new type of business we might see? Well, I'll let you talk about our client alley, but I wanted to mention just, you know, what I've loved seeing is how innovative all our chefs and even restaurant uh, restaurant managers have been do you know doing little businesses from home and many of them have found great success in this and they're like you know what I'm not going back to the day to day and working all these insane hours and not seeing my family because they're finding some success in selling their products from home, whether they're making that themselves or there's a chef who left a very respected restaurant here in LA who started her own Italian product line and she's developing different products and it's really taking off for her. Um, chefs who are making handmade pastas from home and selling those. And, you know, so I wonder if that will be a viable revenue stream for them to really build that. Maybe they find investors and they're able to, to really launch that, uh, more, I have heard some, some, you know, people doing little food pop-ups and food truck pop-ups. So it'll be interesting to see if those kind of have a bit of a renaissance and many, um, high caliber Michelin star chefs or chefs that have been in James Beard nominated restaurants are thinking that they also don't want to go back into those types of restaurants and are going to do something very simple, counter service, fast, casual. They just want to be doing the food that they want to do, have a few, you know, 20 seats and, uh, and do just amazing quality food with the best ingredients. Allie, what's the client that Jackie just referred to? I have to say really fast. I think if there's any silver lining coming out of the pandemic, I feel like it's leveled the playing field quite a bit and democratized things like say what you will about social media, but it's provided a platform for people to be able to connect in ways they it's like harnessed all the potential of the internet and then like microchasmed it down. And so people are able to connect with others who want their services on a personal level. And I think we're going to see a lot more people diversifying their incomes coming out of this as well. I know that for myself, I was with a well-known restaurant group up until the pandemic. And I found myself laid off for five months, like many people in our industry. And 
it was such a reckoning on, oh my gosh, putting all your eggs in one basket. I think even speaking to people that are, you know, millennials and Gen Z younger in their age that aren't usually thinking about diversifying their income yet, like those people, I'm hearing these conversations with chefs about these topics, you know, that said, I think what we're going to see more and more of is and this taps into that is meal delivery. You know, it's, you know, as much as it kind of on one level, it breaks my heart, you know, the idea of, you know, people not always going to restaurants. I think we're going to see people really start to take back the idea of cooking at home and having meals at home. And of course, people are going to be excited to go back out to restaurants. But I think that might be a changing thing as we see in the future that maybe people are going to have a little bit more meals at home. And so we're seeing these really innovative food tech startups. Um, so one client in particular that we're working with is Cook Unity out of New York. And, you know, they're doing some really fascinating things with some well-known names in terms of chefs and providing them the space to be able not only a space, but resources to be able to put together meals so that I could, you know, hopefully when they expand into LA market, you know, I could potentially order a meal from Curtis Stone, you know, and have that delivered to me once a week, you know, and set it on autopilot and I can control it from my app or maybe change up my menu options or, you know, the dietary preferences, all of those things. I think we're going to see a lot more food tech for lack of better terms and a lot more meal service programs, meal delivery programs. There's completely new revenue streams. You know, that's where I was saying earlier I really think this will make us stronger and better moving forward because people have learned to be scrappier and to go after the income where it's there to be taken. Well, it's been humbling, right? I mean, I think you're talking about a new humility. I think a lot of places thought, you know, that's beneath me, to be honest. You know, like it's beneath me to do takeout. That's beneath us. We don't do that. And okay, that's how it was, I guess. But I mean, my God, if you're running a business and your bottom line can be so increased by doing what? By putting stuff in a, in a nice package that you found, you know, and uh, yeah, okay, maybe that's not what you dreamed of when you were five years old, but like, come on. I mean, it's, I think humility is what we're talking about here. I mean, the humility of being challenged uh, from, a, from a profitability or survival level, you know, in terms of business, but I also think the humility that's going to come from just, uh, this is something I've been talking about just in the last week with friends of mine, of just still being here, of not, frankly, of not having died. We're all lucky. Those of us who are still here, those of us who are here, you know, three, four months from now when we all have the vaccine and it's like, like we're all really lucky to be here. And I think whether or not people have put that into words, even in their own heads, I think that's also feeding into what you're talking about, Brad. I think it's like, okay, you know, I'm here. I'm grateful to be here. I'm going to I'm going to do what I need to do to shore up my business, make it a little more comfortable, you know, in the profit and loss report so that, you know, I'm not constantly stressed out and constantly worried about making my next payroll. You know, it's it's like I think ego is going to leave that equation for an overwhelming number of people. And I think that's good. Piggybacking on what you were just saying, I've talked to a lot of clients who have said, you know what? I may have been lazy before this pandemic. I really, really dug into my P&L and I really tightened our belt and I looked at every little item on our P&L and I saved here and I saved there and we made these changes and I didn't really need this subscription or I didn't really need this. And you know what? We're actually doing pretty good now, you know? So it, it, it may have really gotten people to, you know, 
be a little less lazy and take things for granted. If I'm honest, it's hard for me to apply the word lazy to anyone who's like staying afloat in the restaurant business. But I take your point. I do think that um, I do think there was just stuff people just a lot of people just didn't want to do. They just didn't want to do it for whatever reason. I just think it's going to be very interesting to watch all this shake out. My last question actually has nothing to do with anything we've been talking about. Brad, you and your firm are the force behind something I miss so much. I mean, in general, I miss conferences. I miss conferences. You know, I was talking to a chef the other day who I've never met. We only have like an, uh, a podcast, you know, phone relationship. And she said, oh, I hope, you know, we get to meet at some point. We're across the country from each other. And I said, well, hopefully we'll have conferences again. Like, I'm sure we'll be at the same conference. It's, you know, when that starts again, you, you and the firm are behind the, you know, the LA chef conference. I was out there a couple of years ago. It was a great event, great couple of days from the opening party to the, to the, um, you know, to the presentations, to, to the rap little rap party, um, uh, it was a very tame rap party. It wasn't what most people think of when they think of a rap party. It was still <laughs> light outside. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, uh, what can you talk about? Obviously, you couldn't do it last year, but is there talk yet about bringing back the LA Chef Conference? Of course. Yeah, we're just waiting to figure that out. You know, we want the virus to to subside so that we can all get together and, and be able to actually hug and taste food together and share drinks and everything. So... We're looking at the end of the year or beginning of next year. We had an epic, epic lineup scheduled for March 30th. And of course, we had to cancel a couple weeks in advance. We'll be back, baby. It's LAChefConference.com. Okay. Well, on that positive and promotional note, <laughs> let me thank all three of you. You know, I've said this, I've been, you know, we've been doing these segments at the top of the show since the new year. And you know, as I say, we're not trying to solve anything. We're not trying to come to any definitive uh, conclusions. I, it's just a conversation. Hopefully it gives some people out there some ideas. If anyone has anything to add to the conversation, uh, it's very easy to find me. You can, you know, shoot me a DM via the show's uh, Instagram uh, feed or my own, or you can email me via the andrewtalkstochefs.com website. But Allie, Jackie, and Brad, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Nobody's ever asked me that question. It's a good one. I feel really seen. <laughs> it's great talking to you because you don't ask me what my favorite kitchen tool is or what my favorite <laughs> ingredient is to work with. You're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs, an independent podcast. We'll be right back. This was very enjoyable. Thank yeah, you. that was a pleasure. We'll see you again. God, I hope so. And welcome back to the show. Thank you again to Brad, Allie, and Jackie. I really enjoyed that conversation. As I mentioned at the top of the show, our feature guest today is Jesse Cool of Flea Street Cafe in Menlo Park, California. Jesse is, she would probably never use this word about herself, but a pioneer, I would say, in the organic food movement in the United States. She is also, for me, somebody who epitomizes a generation that many of you know I'm fascinated by. She grew up on the East Coast and rather spontaneously came to California back in the 1970s and almost accidentally became a fixture in the food world. She previously owned the restaurant Late for the Train, a name that I love. We talk about that a little 
in our interview and has also owned and operated a variety of restaurants and Fleet Street sister businesses in the Menlo Park area over the years. If you don't live in Northern California or aren't a quote unquote foodie or someone who follows the industry closely, you may not know Jesse's name, but trust me, that's only because she doesn't court publicity like many of her peers did and do. That's actually something we talk about in the interview, but she is a very well-known, I would say legend in the Bay Area of California. She's probably blushing as she hears me say that over the air and is also someone who I consider a dear friend. So with all that, I'm delighted to share this conversation with you. And without any further delay, I'm going to get right to it. Please enjoy my chat with the great Jesse Cool. Here you go. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Andrew. How are you this morning? You know, I think every day, especially for this past year, the most important thing I can say or any of us can say is we're doing okay. You mean just to be here? Yep. Yeah, I agree. No COVID and my house. I have my house. You know, I, 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 it's been a very good thing for me mentally early on. I remember laying in bed one night, my wife was next to me and I said, all I want until this is over is a roof over my head and for none of us to get sick. That's it. That's, that's all I wanted. That's a bump. That's about a year ago now, but making that adjustment mentally early on, I think saved my sanity, at least for a portion of the last year. I think I heard on one of your podcasts that the word pivot was something of six months ago. And I thought, well, what are, what, what are we thinking now? Or what do we hold on to? And how do we move into the future with, with hope as good leadership or, or with those near us who we love or those who we don't even know? And for me, it, it remains values, which has always driven my life anyway. Mm. That's deep. Can you say more about that? Well, you know me. I do. I wish I could have been recording actually before we even got on the phone because we had like what classic, to me, a classic Jesse Cool exchange. You, I sent you a link maybe five hours ago. <laughs> and then you wrote me and said, I got it. Can I talk to you in my nightgown? Is there any video? And I said, no, it's strictly audio. And then you called me and said, I lost the link. But you hadn't lost the link. You were just looking for an email from me instead of from Zencaster. And then you told me that you had, you know, decided it would be proper for you to get, you know, properly attired for the call. And then you told me you were, you know, that your uh, your night garment was actually organic, which of course it was. <laughs> of course it was. And all my bedding's organic because I spend, I spend eight, year, eight hours, we spend eight hours there. So I'm going to make sure that it's well sourced and... And it's supporting a really good company, you know? Go ahead. Plug the company. Coyuchi. C-O-Y-U-C-H-I. And they do what? Organic? Um... Bedding and some clothing and baby clothes. and. So I got in touch with you the other day. I, I told you, you know, you came on last summer during uh, when we or last, I guess, last spring when we were doing our nightly special reports. You talked about the Heart of House program that you were developing at your restaurant, Flea Street Cafe, which uh, I'll link back to that interview from today's episode page if people want to go listen to that. Um, but you and I have known each other now. God, we've probably known each other about 10 years at this point, I would I would guess. We, we've become, I think, I'd like to think, I hope I'm right, we've become very good friends. We have. 
but you know, I rang you up and I said, you know, uh, why don't you be the the biographical interview this week? You know, we've never had you on for that. I did once run on my blog a transcript that of my the book interview we did for Chef's Drugs and Rock and Roll. Your story to me is so evocative and so kind of like prototypical in a way of of a lot of people in the food realm who come from elsewhere, who in hindsight, you know, probably inevitably migrated to California. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, to me, your life is just so intertwined with a lot of these sort of movements and traditions in food in this country that a lot of people, I think, at this point just are, you know, take for granted, you know, things that are now sort of assumed. You're probably too modest to say this, Jesse, but I think you, or maybe you're not on this point, but you really were a pioneer of, you know, the so-called organic movement in this country. You were very early to that game. Does it, does it, um, does it make you uncomfortable if I use a word like that in relation to you? Or is that one of the rare categories where you're like, yeah, I, I deserve that. I deserve that moniker for organic. You know, I don't I don't use the word deserve. So that would make me uncomfortable. But I think now as an elder, looking back, it's 45 years that I've been in the um, restaurant business. And I look back and can see more clearly that the path was one that was very alternative and lunatic fringe because it was very committed to clean food, you know, the only word we had back then was organic. There was no sustainable, there was no farm to table. We didn't even take pictures of each other in kitchens. I think looking back, I would say the pioneering part was to bring it back to the present because um, organic clean food is something that's very old world. So I probably describe myself more as an old-fashioned person. Would you have described yourself that way then? Because a lot of people who came up when you did, you know, I remember very clearly interviewing Sue and Peg from Cowgirl Creamery and them pointing me toward, you know, these old like catalogs, even like seed catalogs, but also like clothing catalogs and 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 things that, you know, predated them that, you know, that they felt like that, that when they kind of were coming up around the same time you were as cooks um, and trying to stick to certain criteria of how they did what they did, that they were actually, re you know, they were kind of reactivating or reanimating things that predated this time that we today, I think very myopically think of, you know, as the enlightenment around food in this country. I think it's very true that um, the cowgirl Creamery girls and and I have to say that there were some women um, leading this direction forty years or so ago, and it was we were mamas and we were people who m most likely were not classically trained or did not follow the um, the mandates of of a European style approach to cooking, except from a more rural or country or ingredient connected and driven perspective. That is primarily, I think, what most of us would say uh, led us to the way we approached people and food. Uh, before food, the people who were farming and fishing and growing and producing the food, those connections were much more important to us than just style or following a recipe. And I too collected very old fashioned recipe books and the joy of cooking is my Bible. Um, 
because I was able to adapt to wherever I lived um, and cook. And it was about people and cooking. And those were the values that at the beginning of the interview I mentioned, those are the values actually within this last year have become even more crystal clear that allow me to be happy in the midst of this very difficult time. Yeah, I mean, that makes total sense to me. I think for a lot of people in this kind of emotional, philosophical roller coaster we've all been on, I think a lot of people have, um, how, do you, how do we put it? I think a lot of the kind of trappings, not that you were ever that susceptible to this stuff, I mean, relatively speaking. Um, oh, it was always tempting, come on. But yeah, but a lot of the trappings of, of, of you know, re- what, what, what we saw in restaurants or a lot of the trappings of, you know, just life. Uh, I think people have moved, uh, moved to, you know, like we started this conversation saying, you know, both of us are just grateful to be here, you know, after the last year, there's, there's almost half a million Americans who aren't. Um, and uh, I certainly have found, you know, materialism as much as that applied to me, I think has largely fallen away. And a lot of big ways. I mean, part of it's because there's nobody to show it off to, right? I mean, there's no reason to buy new clothes right now. <laughs> I mean, unless unless your stuff is literally falling apart. I mean, why would in the world would you buy a nice new shirt or sweater or whatever right now? You know, I remember the night we were about to close Flea Street, March 17th, and I went to a, a table with a party of six. The restaurant was cat, packed. I mean, we just had our 40th anniversary. We were just about to have a big party this summer. And a guest looked at me and said, uh, Jesse, what are you going to do? How are you going to get food? And I looked at her and I said, that is going to be the least of my problems because we've always bought local. And it was never, it's never been a challenge to find ingredient because we have relationships and connections of 45 years. I think what was, was more challenging was how to take care of our people. And I have a little restaurant, you know, that Felicia is not very big, but we still employ 12 people. And the heart of the house, which you mentioned, was a very quick obsession on how in the world now that we can change things from the direction it was going. And for me, the direction it was going, Andrew, was, oh, I was trying to compete with everybody else. And I was trying to be a little more fine dining and more steppy. And I didn't like it because it was detracting from those original core values of what is the ingredient all about and how are the people treated from beginning to end. And it was a moment in time with everything else falling apart to go back to restructuring that. And we've done it. So I'm happy. I can say I'm happy um, in the restaurant business again. And it's back to being simple simple but exotic with flavor and it was surrounded by people who are working together and the arrogance or entitlement is gone and i find that really refreshing we'll get come back to the present in a minute but can we just give people a kind of a you know a, 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 a i mean we can't we can't go blow by blow right we don't have all day but um you know, I'd love to tell people your story a little bit. First of all, can you, because I just love this. Your name is Jesse Cool. Um, now, one of those is not actually your given <laughs> right. name, but it's not the it's not the awesome one, right? <laughs> um, cool was your married name. That's right. 
So that was actually, that's not an affectation or an invention. That was, you know, a, a, a name that came about quite naturally. But can you tell people the story of Jesse? Okay, so I am a love child of the 60s and 70s. And um, my first marriage, which was happened at a very young age, the person called me Sue, and I didn't like it. So one evening, dancing to the Allman Brothers, in a long hippie dress with long hair, I thought, oh, the song Jessica, I'm going to become Jessica. So I became Jesse. So I am Jesse Cool. And when Bob and I divorced, he is my dear friend. There's no way I was going to stop being Jesse Cool. I absolutely love it. And to, and you are from where, Jesse? Tell people a little bit about where and how you grew up and what your first sort of kind of like pinch of uh, attraction was to the food world. So I'm from a very small um, town uh, in Western Pennsylvania. And um, my father owned a grocery store that uh, originally started under his father's store. Um, I'm Jewish and Italian. So everything in my life was about food, both the dysfunction and the good stuff was surrounded with cooking and and love and sharing. And so my dad had a grocery store. I learned to cook. Um, I did everything I did uh, when I left home to get away from food because of the, the craziness that I thought it, it embodied. But every time I had to go back to surviving, I cooked. So um, I was a single parent living in Philadelphia, um, met somebody when I was hitchhiking during the summer without my son, and um, I'm cutting this really short, and he happened to be from California. And when I got back to Philadelphia after meeting him in Canada hitchhiking, he sent me a message. I think he called me because you couldn't text back then and said, I think you belong with me in California. I'm going to drive my 67 Volkswagen bus from Palo Alto, California to Philadelphia and pick you up. And he did. And that's how California. Now, how how dramatic a, a decision. I mean, people hear that now and that just sounds, I mean, the idea that you get this very romantic phone call from across the country, this person drives to get you, you're going to drive across country, you're going to change your whole life. I mean, to a lot of people today, that just doesn't, I mean, first of all, the grand gesture of, 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 you know, that proposition that he made, even that is very, that's like something you see in a movie. That's not real life, but that was real life for you. But did it seem extreme at the time or did it just seem of a piece with the landscape that you were living against at that time? Well, my mother and father uh, showed up to send me off and it was like attending my own funeral. They were so sad and upset. They thought, they thought what, that you were ruining your life? Completely crazy. That like. But are you really taking your son and getting in this van and giving everything away and going? And then one of the people, I was living in a community, one of the people who I was with whispered in my ear, get in the van right now. You belong in California. Mm, and who was that person? His name was Rob. Um, I lived in a house with a bunch of guys because I wanted my son to be around men. While I, and I was on welfare, I mean... My family lost the grocery store and they lost everything. And I was a survivalist way back then. So while I was on welfare, um, completely, all I wanted was to get my college degree. So while I was going to 
Temple University, I was cooking my way through everything else. I got my son into a Quaker school because I traded cooking organic food in the 70s to keep him in school. And even in California, I traded everything by cooking for private schools and um, then became a waitress and um, at the Good Earth, uh, where I met Bob Cool, um, because it was my way of taking care of myself. It was what I knew how to do. What when you what kind of stuff were you cooking? What I was about more than anything, and to this day, it wasn't about meat or or vegetarian. It was about food that had no artificial anything in it. I really believe that that you had to be true to where the food came from and not poison the people who were growing it or processing it and that you don't poison your community and you don't give your family anything artificial. So it was, it was joy of cooking. I mean, it was just regular food. It was a turkey sandwich, but the turkey had no hormones in it. I didn't use meat until I could find meat that was without antibiotics or hormones. But I wasn't a vegetarian. The way I cooked was, it would, could be a stroganoff. Remember, this was the 60s and 70s. So it was heavier, heartier, more uh, country-style food. And because I lived in California and believed in supporting the people who lived near me, it was always driven by the seasons. So it Using unusual ingredients for people at the time, people didn't even know what a purple potato was. They didn't know potatoes came in different colors. They, they, it was hard to get them to eat a tomato that wasn't sliced perfectly. Yeah, this is something people are much smarter and savvy about now. But it, it wasn't all that long ago that it was like you know you would the the imp, the the visual imperfection of a lot of organic food like you're you know like to get an apple that wasn't perfectly round or a tomato that wasn't like that is sort of a that is i was going to say symptom but that sounds terrible but that is sort of um you know that is part of the aesthetic of organic food often is those imperfections but people were so used to these commercial crops um that they weren't they it was it was the stuff that was actually better for you often didn't look as pretty. And I also think it was bringing them back to true flavors, not just um, eating from their mind or their head. And forgive me, but I even used to think that a lot of the quote chefs cooked more from their, from their head or what they thought than from their palate and what they wanted to taste. That's not the way it is now. Um, But I remember going to tables and it was mashed potatoes with a beautiful piece of fish. And I, by the way, I'm going through all my old recipes. They're piled on my table from 40 years ago or 45 years ago. But, and my recipes were always very simple. And I would go to the table and they'd say, oh, these mashed potatoes, they're so amazing. And I looked at them and said, I don't know how to tell you this, but it's about the potato and the butter. I still need you to come into the restaurant because I and I have to charge you for it. But the truth is, you can do this so easily at home. It was ingredient driven. It was flavor. And to this day, even with our cocktails, training a bartender to understand what it means to have the ability to taste everything in that drink. And my young chef, 23 years old, said, I really get it now, Jesse. I'm tasting everything. I'm not just tasting salt or fat. We're not tricking people. And that's that's driven by beautiful, fresh, local, um, not encumbered uh, food combinations. 
Who or what was your teacher on these things? Like, did, what, did you have kind of a personal, um, you know, guru who, I don't mean guru literally, but, you know, somebody who kind of was an educator for you about the, something like this back, back then? Or were there, things you, were there things you were reading? Who or what took you to this place of illumination about, about, how, about what you wanted to put in your body and what you wanted other people to put in their bodies? My grandfather taught me to forage because we would go through the neighborhood and we would dig up dandelion leaves. Okay, so I'm assuming this is the Italian side of the family. That's the Italian, my papa. Yeah, <laughs> that, is not, that is not a Jewish man who was doing that. No, no, no. I was so embarrassed, but I was clueless. And my, my Nana taught me how to cook um, like old-fashioned recipes, giant ravioli and uh, uh, bacala. My father in the grocery store did family meal every day. He would take all the ends and bits and he taught me how to be frugal with food and share with others. But my real mentors, I'm a bit of a farmer groupie. My real mentors were not uh, chefs or cooks or reading. I hung out with farmers. They would put me on the back of the truck at a farmer's market and say, oh my God, Jesse, taste this silver queen corn. corn. Full Belly Farms, just take a bite into it. You don't even need to cook it. So I would go to the farming conferences. I was a little clueless about about a lot of the, the James Beard Foundation. I didn't know about those organizations until I started writing books. I was I was with the farmers and the fishermen, and they would just have me taste the food at the purest place. And that's how I learned. You've referenced a couple of times already the word chef. I think you actually said so-called chef or quote, quote unquote chef a minute ago. There's a story you've told me before that I just absolutely love, which was when you started having restaurants and before you had Fleet Street, you had a place called Late for the Train, um, which is such a great name. Uh, But, uh, you know, you've, I'd love you to just speak to this for a minute, but you never liked, and I have to say, I have a sense, uh, even in a number of contemporary people, um, I, I've met a lot of women who do not like or use the word chef in application to themselves. They don't particularly like that word, but you never did. Um, and you have this funny story you've told, I'm sure not just to me, but that you didn't, you know, like, could I call myself a cooker person? <laughs> like you went, you didn't know what to call yourself. Can you just speak to what the connotations of that word are for you and why you think maybe you and some other people over the years, including now, have have been kind of put off by it? Because it was an arrogance and it meant that chief, chef. And certainly I managed the kitchen and I was a cooker person and my kids, my two boys said, mom, you can't call yourself a cooker person. I said, but I am a cooker person. Um, I, I got really tired and um, as a woman way back then, it was really hard to find trained people, predominantly men at the time, who called themselves chefs, who did not, in my opinion, um, treat others the way I felt like they should in the workforce. They just couldn't get that I wasn't classically trained, or they couldn't get that my food was fluid and it was, it was, uh, gourmet had a new definition. It was, I don't care if the carrots aren't perfect. 
I had one amazing chef, finally, Carlos, who really loved the garden, who would climb up in trees and pick the figs, who, if I took daikon that had been eaten by bugs, he would say, oh, it must be delicious now. He really got it. And historically, there were so many amazing women cooks who, who really were the best in that kitchen. And they treated people differently and well. They were funny. They were nurturing, but they were also firm and really good cooks. But honestly, Andrew, I don't like to pull the woman card much, but it was not easy being a woman leader in this industry. Even in the even in in Northern California, because I'm asking that question because to me, the you know, the Bay Area of California is unique, I think, in the not just in the U.S., but in, in the Western world in that, you know, in this time that you came up, maybe a little bit after you had your first place, but certainly by the time you get into the 1980s, I mean, you could argue that with a couple of very prominent exceptions, women ran that that area. Uh, and they they got a lot of they got most of the attention. They're the ones who have become sort of the Bay Area legends. Maybe it's because um, just for me, I never worked in other restaurants. Um, I had children the whole time. I didn't get out as much. I was in the Bay Area, which was like living in Idaho, because we were even though we were you know south of San Francisco and Berkeley and Sonoma, trucks didn't come down here. I had to drive everywhere to get food. And because I hadn't even gone to France to cook or didn't have any professional training, I just was a cook that started a restaurant with a a man named Bob Cool and his buddy, Steve Silva. We just opened this restaurant. And because I was so committed to clean food, the only way I would join the team was if we went to the local co-op and bought you know, organic ingredients, uh, uh, clean ingredients. I think because as a woman, I didn't get the outside experience or the camaraderie. It was a, it was a very challenging learning curve to be both mother and nurture and to learn how to be the one that said, actually, not your way, my way. That was really hard for me. So I was passive aggressive. I was indirect. If I could, I would stand up on a cloud and I would say, I'm sorry to all the people that I didn't do a really good job at at managing and delegating and being clear. And I had to learn how to be a business person. I didn't even know what QuickBooks was. I counted everything by hand. I mean, I had a long learning curve that because I was a survivalist, because I had a welfare mentality, because I, you know would get up the next day and do whatever it took to make it happen. I was, I was a little isolated. So I let myself be bullied too. Honestly, Andrew, I did. By your own staff? Most of the time, chefs. They could bully me. Oh, my staff has been with me 25 years. I love them. No, no, no. They're collaborators. It was it was people who came in and wanted to completely change Flea Street or I'd walk in the walk-in and there'd be non-organic strawberries and non-organic this and that. And I'd say, what happened? And they wouldn't tell me the truth. I mean, they, they didn't think it was important. They didn't respect those values. Well, can we also say, and I, I have a kind of a related question in a second, but you know, uh, when you and I first got to know each other, something that really struck me was I, I, I feel like you... 
I mean, yeah, you're on Instagram and, you know, but you, you've you never been uh, like a PR hound. You've never, partic- as, at least as far as I know you and, and from what I can tell, talking to other people about you, you you've, you've kind of put your head down, run your place, done your thing, done it your way, but you've never really felt this, uh, you know, this need to, to solicit the adoration of the media uh, or to go after television gigs and things like that. Is, is that a fair statement? Well, I did it. I did the morning news, the Channel 2 News for a year. I mean, I've done it all, but it, I'm not comfortable. I'm probably too insecure. I don't like to fail in front of other people. Um, and that it every time I did it, it wasn't it wasn't about what what the work was really about as a cooker person. It, that meant I was doing it for the outside world. I wasn't doing it for for what I believed I was supposed to be doing in my community. I'm a small town girl. I I love this community. It makes me teary eyed right now that they're keeping us alive during COVID. They show up and still have their special occasions in a bag from us. They don't want us to go away. And it's because um, I didn't chase after that. I'm a good storyteller. I'll go to the table and tell you where the food came from and who produced it. And I'll stand over you and say, blindfold yourself and taste the beets, even though you hated canned beets. Or I'll do benefits. I mean, I'll, but I'll stay there. I'll go to the, to the farmers. But I, I didn't feel like I had to do that to be doing my work. I mean, I cooked in Iceland. I've been all over, but but it it wasn't it wasn't what came first. What came first was the people on my staff, the people who were willing to support what we were doing, my poor children who were brought up in the restaurant was more than enough, let alone God bless the James Beard Foundation, but back then, the thought of getting on an airplane with my staff and paying all that money, how could I possibly do that? You mean to do a dinner at the house? Yes. Yeah. I mean- That's an expensive That's an expensive proposition. Most people outside the industry don't know that, but that is a multi, multi-thousand dollar thing for a restaurant to do. And how could I leave my staff for that long to go do that? And also, Andrew, I would always like, I mean, I loved getting great reviews and- you know, if they happen to give me a Michelin star, well, maybe. But but what seemed to come with it made me uncomfortable, that people had expectations that we were supposed to be a certain way and that they were paying for that made me want to backpedal again and say, wait a minute, we have to go back to, oh, by the way, you know this, my core... Um, philosophy in the restaurant of values from the beginning is that the customer comes last. And my whole staff knows that the customer comes last. And what we mean by that is we take care of the environment. We take care of the people who are producing the food. We make sure that every single person from the dishwasher to the bartender to the server get fed really well and treated equally. And if we do all that, then the guests will get taken care of. I found when you chase that kind of publicity that it was outer directed and it made me, I didn't like it. It didn't feel right. Well, you know, I feel like there's a similar thing. You know, you said a few minutes ago, you don't like, you didn't like to play the the woman card. And to be honest, I mean, people who've heard me do a lot of interviews over the years know this. I tend not to bring up 
issues of race or gender or sexual orientation or whatever, unless guests do, because I kind of like to take everybody on their own terms, you know, and not put them in these cubby holes. But I do think that there is very much, I, I do think a lot of women over the years have been undervalued as chefs because I don't feel like they have, um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with, with the people, mostly men who do have it, um, but I think women are less burdened by what I've come to call the transformative impulse. They don't necessarily feel a need to show off with their cooking. They don't feel a need to you know, visually kind of go the, the, the kind of pyrotechnic route or have, you know, uh, just, you know, off the chart knife work on display. Um, you know, I, the example I give, she was on the show maybe two years ago, Kathy Wims in uh, Portland, Oregon. You know, she's been doing very, as a lot of women chefs in this country have uh, for years, American women, you know, she does very, very traditional Italian food. She's very happy to be a steward of these classic recipes. There is a dish that's been on the menu there from day one that is uh, one of Marcella Hazan's uh, sauce recipes, you know, on a pasta. It's credited to Marcella and it's done very faithfully. And I always point to that as sort of an example of, you know, that is something to me that, you know, that that doesn't necessarily win you all the accolades and attention, but there's nothing intrinsically less valuable about that than someone who's doing something that's eye-popping. Uh, there, there really isn't. But I feel like a lot of women are handicapped in terms of how, what kind of attention they get because they, they don't have that, um, that impulse. I think many of us are peopleists and we're, we are equalists. And the only thing I would say about being a woman was it was just very hard sometimes. And I own it myself that I allow that to happen because I didn't, I mean, I've, I'm in my 70s. So I was brought up where, you know, the woman gives 75% and the man gives 25%. I was taught that. So when I became a leader, an entrepreneur, a manager, it was a constant struggle to figure out how to do that in a much more male-driven environment. So those of us who are good cooks or cooker people, who um, are equalists or peopleists, we love the men who are like us, who love to cook and love to treat people fairly and are respectful and responsible. And so I don't think we like to pull the woman card, but I do think it can be a, just a learning curve to figure out how to to maintain our businesses, a very difficult business restaurants, without chasing um, the fame or popularity. I also think a lot of us don't care. Like Kathy, I just saw her on a little uh, video the other day, and she was in her clothes with a, with a really nice apron on. We don't have to have the crisp chef's coats or the toque. I, I don't think we needed that because we just wanted to cook both traditional recipes that worked and inventive recipes of our own and make the food delicious and nurture people. So when you first opened Flea Street, what was your, or I guess I should even say late for the train, but you know, Flea Street's the one that's like <clears throat> been going, you know, for, for a long time. Um, uh, but was it, uh, was it, 
were you motivated by a desire to sort of, um, this is too strong a word, but kind of, you know, proselytize, spread the word about how to, you know, eat a little bit, how to eat healthfully and all of that? Or was it more you needed to earn a living and this was a, just an extension of the thing that had always been the medium for you to do that? Well, I was already preaching. Um, I would have to be very careful about it because I had to be sure to not make people uncomfortable about uh, the philosophy of organics. And way back then, you couldn't even put it on the menu. Uh, Flea Street opened after a big fight with Bob Cool because I did not want to open a dinner house. I had a child and late for the train was doing fine. And we didn't have to tell everybody it was organic food because the food was delicious. And, you know, it was a I didn't even want to open Flea Street. <clears throat> so I kept opening restaurants, especially after Flea Street, because I opened five, because it was the only way I could offer better better benefits to employees. You have to have a couple of them. Um, also, I wanted to prove that you could take this clean uh, ingredient and um, and use it in uh, fine dining or a breakfast place, or I still have the cool cafe at the Stanford U University Art Museum. We were the, it's 21 years old. We were the first um, uh, museum that offered a, an organic chemical-free <laughs> ingredient menu. Um, it was more to take it to different platforms so that it, the word could spread. So in many ways, yes, I would say, that was important to me to try to change the world back to the old way of respecting um, food and production. How do you look at the history of this restaurant of Flea Street? Do you do you break it up? In, are there are there eras in the life of the restaurant as you look back on it, and um, or is it just kind of one unbroken arc that it's you know been living and. And, uh, you know, it is a, it is no small thing to have a restaurant that's been around that long. It's you're, it's probably, I mean, what? It's fewer than 5%, I'm sure, of restaurants that last anywhere near how long Flea Street's lasted. What's the secret of that, Ben, as, as much as you're able to discern it? Well, I think it's certainly tenacity. And it is that I embrace perfect imperfection in my own life and with my children and with my friendships and with everything about the restaurant. And it is going to bed on a Wednesday night, having a disastrous, terrible day or nearly going bankrupt and getting up the next day and thinking, how am I going to fix this? What am I going to do? I think that's without question um, what has kept us alive. I have great relationships with my landlords. They are in partnership with me. I only work on percentage rent. So that was one, and I'm very, very adamant. I'm a brutal rent negotiator. I think that's kept us alive. The one thing that has never changed is the customer comes last and we are ingredient driven. But the food at the beginning of Flea Street was giant portions of much heartier food than it's much more, um, uh, I would say, sophisticated now because diners have changed and they understand food more than more now than they did then back then I had to trick them or mimic you know what they 
they were used to steak and potatoes in the Bay Area even. And I just somehow tricked them into a little less meat and that the plant-based foods were actually what they really liked on the plate. And now we don't have to do that as much. But I also think we've survived because we are a place of celebration and a place of innovation. You know, Mark Zuckerberg met Sheryl Sandberg at Flea Street for the first time. And Larry and Sergey sat at table 61 with Al Gore um, brainstorming Google. And along with customers who have who are equally as important as them, they have celebrated birthdays and anniversaries and, and uh, you know, moments in their life over and over again in this restaurant. It is a part of them. I often say the walls are just seeped with love and with um, information about the community that, that now their children come back and know that, that those same qualities of a good staff because the customer comes last and the same ethics about food and community remain. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. And I have to say, you you know, you talked about how the food had changed. You know, the one time I ate there, I was with you. But we had been drinking a little bit. Well, so I was going to say, I, I was actually struggling to stay conscious. I was terribly jet lagged. And we had we had we were supposed to have done an interview. I met you. You have this incredible backyard situation at your house, and you are a. I, I don't know if you still do it, but you're. A, are you still a nightly martini drinker? Every single night. Yeah. I, so I'm on no prescription drugs. I take vitamins only when I need them. But in my doctor's chart, I looked. I said to her the other day, "Does it still say that I have a martini every night?" And she looked at me. She said, "It does." <laughs> So, uh, yeah, we, we had some martinis and then, um, can I say this? We, we went around the corner to some corner place and got a pack of smokes. Can I say that? Um, I mean, I was pretty wrecked by the time we got to dinner and it was, you know, three hours later on my body clock and, but I'm so sorry, Andrew. I'm so sorry. We missed the interview. We didn't do the interview. Yeah. We met at a coffee place in town. Uh, 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 I think on my next trip even, but we had, but, but I do remember being struck because it was during, you mentioned him, it was during the, the Carlos era in the kitchen. Um, and I was surprised, struck and a little surprised. The food was, you know, it was plated in kind of a, you know, well, not, not over the top or anything, but it was very, um, you know, it was plated in a very modern way. Um, uh, it looked very of the moment. It didn't seem not not like super trendy, but it also did not seem dated or um, unrelatably casual, you know, to a for a meal in the early 2010s. It it seemed like what I would expect in a contemporary restaurant. The food is contemporary because the ingredients still speaks for itself. And beautiful food is beautiful food. So as you sit here, uh, I mean, you kind of said this at the beginning of the conversation, but uh how how are you how are you feeling right now you know uh early february 2021 vaccines are you got your first shot i saw it on your social um vaccines are going around you know the the warmer weather is is you know just around the bend up ahead we can kind of see it um uh it seems to me like for people who have made it this far it does seem like a time for maybe guarded optimism what's your outlook right now uh, as as this year starts to unspool? Well, this is probably one of the few times in my life I would call myself conservative, but I am. And I don't trust anything anymore. 
that said, um, our our tagline for this time is responsible, respectful, and safe. So while we as in the industry are being ultra careful and following mandates, I'm nervous about what's going to happen when our dear guests are let loose and have a few drinks um, and what they're going to be like whenever we are still being conservative and careful even after they've had vaccines because we don't quite know what is going to happen even sitting outside. As far as the future, um, I actually hope that maybe my grandson, who is now 21, will end up being um, my mentee and learning the restaurant. And maybe he'll take it over someday if he wants it. Wow. That's great. Yes. So he's shown yes. an interest and an aptitude in all that? Oh, he's learned in the restaurant. He's worked with me. He he even says it was a place because whenever he would come to the front door, the back door, like my kids would, I would say to them, I am not Mima anymore. I am Jesse. I am not mom anymore. I am Jesse. And they would have to switch into me being extremely demanding and picky, very picky. So he learned in high school how to do that. Um, you never know. But uh, for the future, I'm willing to keep adapting to um, keep the restaurant alive as long as possible if we get another PPP, um, to keep my staff employed, to never give up the values of the way we prepare food or take care of the community, even in a bag, because in our bags of food, there are all these little extra treats that we send out. We still get the biscuits and they still get taste of the season from my garden. And um, I think we're going to shift our way of service. And that's what Heart of the House is about, that it's not going to be as, um, oh, as intrusive or fussy. People will do a little more for themselves at the table. So we don't, we don't have to hover or get as near. Um, the food will, re will remain as beautiful and delicious and thoughtfully prepared. So I, I'm positive about change, but I'm also prepared for the unknown. We just don't know what's going to be next, Andrew. No, we don't. I couldn't agree more. But again, we never did, right? I mean, that's the thing. We never did. That that the you know that was an illusion. You know, it's it's. Uh, I, I've talked to so many people recently, and I would count myself among this uh, among these people. You know, life and death. Uh, go on outside of COVID uh, during this time. You know, that's COVID is not the only catastrophe going on in the world. People are still having um, uh, very beautiful things happening in their lives, sometimes unexpected. And people are also having terrible traumas inflicted on them unrelated to COVID during this time. I mean, it all still goes on. But I do think this has been, um, you know, this kind of giant sort of reminder that we never do know what's around the corner. As you know, I was semi-retiring and I came back in full force and it gave me the, the opportunity to love my restaurants again because I was getting really, I was really tired of what I saw as both entitlement and arrogance in the workforce and in guests. I couldn't stand it anymore. And what this is doing is what you talked about at the beginning, that we are expecting less. We are loving people more. I think we're talking to each other. There's a, a shift in the way we look at our own lives and the outside. 
I will not take what was going on uh, prior to COVID back as um, a way of operating the restaurants. So there is going to be a shift, um, but the shift is going to come from love and care. It's not going to come from anything other than the best we can do after having been through a very difficult time in the restaurant industry. But I'm positive and my staff is excited. They're not stressed out. We're all nervous. We're all scared. Um, I think the first unknowns that hit us at the beginning of COVID was like buckets, like we're buckets of ice water thrown in our face that woke us up to do something different. But now we're kind of, I kind of wait to get hit again. Like, okay, what are you going to do to me next? And then let's go back in there and let's all put our heads together and let's make sure though, no matter what we do and why we do it, we remain conservative to taking care of ourselves first. We take care of our staff first, because if we take care of ourselves and them, then we can take care of everybody else. And sometimes that's a little bit hard to understand in hospitality. Yeah, well, there's been general, you know, generations of people on both sides of the hospitality equation have been taught, you know, these things, you know, your your line, the customer comes last, is a riff on the customer's always right or the customer comes first. And there is like, in, uh, like you said, like what's going to happen when, you know, people, you know, the, some of these restrictions are lifted, but maybe not entirely. And there is, I think there can be, uh, you know, this sense of entitlement that says this sense of, well, I'm the customer, I get what I want. Um, and it's, it's, it is a very unfortunate part of the culture, but you know, you do have, everyone does have the right to set their own policies and their own culture under their, you know, within their four walls of their own restaurants. We just had a staff meeting outside with all of them far away from me. And I explained it again, that at the beginning of opening our restaurants to be offering organic food and to tell that story was very uncomfortable for people that we didn't have meat yet because we couldn't get meat that wasn't grown without hormones or antibiotics. They would just stare at us. And who cares? In some ways, it's the same now as it was then. If somebody doesn't understand that we're not going to come near the table unless they put their mask up, or the, the way we bus a table is that we wait till the very end or we leave a place for them to put their dirty dishes, we will go to them if they're uncomfortable and say, We'd love to buy your drinks. It's okay if you don't want to eat here. I, The whole staff is ready to do that because I believe we will build a business with people who want us to be the way we are, just the way we built a business because people in this community wanted a loving, nurturing place that didn't take care of you just because you were special, important, or wealthy, that took care of you because you loved eating our food and you wanted to be in a place that was respectful to both staff and guests. I don't think it's any different. We're just going to do it again. And that's our show for today. Again, my great thanks to Jesse Cool, as well as Brad Metzger, Ali Barton, and Jackie Lianza. Please, if you're able to, subscribe to Andrew Talks to Chefs on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. It is free, and new episodes will automatically appear in your podcast queue as they launch. You can also follow us on Instagram. The handle there is at Chef Podcast. If you have any feedback about the show, please find links to email us or send us a voicemail 
on our web pages at andrewtalkstochefs.com. We would love to hear from you. Thank you, as always, to After School Special for our music. Please seek out their album, Double Barrel, single entendre on iTunes, and enjoy more of their music. Thank you for listening, and we will see you back here very soon with another episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs.